welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. Today we're talking about culture and inequality in the present age. How has cultural distinction changed in this era of globalization, digitization and democratization? Is the notion of cultural capital still relevant in a time when professors do karaoke instead of going to the opera? Is social class still the most important form of cultural inequality? Should we start looking at race or gender instead? And can we even understand culture and inequality if we only focus on arts and cultural consumption? I'm discussing these questions and many others with Luc Brands, who also featured in the first episode. Welcome, Luc. So here we are again. Welcome back to the Culture and Inequality podcast. Uh, my name is Luc Brands, and I'm joined today again by Gieselinde Kuipers. Hello, Gieselinde. Hello, Luc. So as you could hear in the intro today, we are talking about how cultural inequalities work today. Last week, we talked about uh, some of the canonical texts uh, in the discipline and about culture and inequality generally. But today uh, we go beyond the classics to more contemporary readings. So that's where we are today. All right. I have a first question for you, Gislinde, and that's what surprised you most about this week's readings? Yeah, so well, I selected the readings myself, so I was not very, very surprised by what I found. But I think what was <laughs> interesting, what was interesting <laughs> about this week is that um, all of the um, sort of empirical papers went in the same direction of culture becoming more open, people becoming more tolerant, uh, you know, elites becoming more cosmopolitan, all these sorts of ways of showing more openness in cultural terms. Whereas at the same time, uh, well, inequality has not changed. On the contrary, I mean, what we see is that uh, most societies are becoming much more unequal today. So there is a bizarre paradox here that everybody knows that, you know, you shouldn't discriminate against people, you shouldn't draw boundaries, and everybody applauds this openness. And what we see is uh, people, you know, still, I mean, this, this is mostly about elites and rich people, and people are well off who have very clever ways of still, you know, expressing their sense of superiority over others. All right, so it surprised you most that there's a paradox actually in today's inequality where openness actually doesn't necessarily mean that things get more equal. Right. Yeah, for me, the most surprising thing was also indeed that this uh, actually the kind of inequality becomes more insidious and more subtle, perhaps, than uh, than than in last week's readings. So even when people like the same things as you do, there's still this sense of exclusion and inequalities one way or another. So this week we're talking about these more insidious ways. And in, in a sense, we go, we continue from last week. Uh, right, Rieselinde? Yes, because last week we ended actually both of us with the observation that looking at uh, these older texts, that actually quite a bit had changed and sounded also uh, dated almost. Like this notion of, you know, people distinguishing themselves through highbrow culture, as if the opera is still a thing that is really central yeah. to this, or also thinking about, exactly, thinking about linear television as a way, yeah. and television as something that is really mostly for the popular classes. So many of yeah. the things that, that these texts refer to now seem very dated and a bit old-fashioned and also very rigid. So even though we recognized the mechanisms and they felt very sort of um, uh, close to our everyday experience, there were also many things that now seem um, that really have changed. Um, and I think so the question I would, because I think this is also a, a place where we see 
historical shifts reflected in personal experience. So I think I think you specifically said that some of the things felt sort of alien to you. Can you say maybe a little bit more about things that felt strange or far away or outdated to you? Well, this notion, so much of Bourdieu is also about this high cultural stuff such as opera, uh, that felt a bit outdated. And also this total lack of uh, acknowledgement of the globalization that has taken place since then. So that's also one of the major shifts I feel since like many of the texts of last week were mostly from the, well, Bourdieu actually 70s, 80s, Le Mans was much more recent, but it felt very much contained within national societies. Uh, and I think transnationalization in itself also did something with how this culture has become more fluid. And that's also, I think, something we will see today, right? Um, so that's what felt dated. So that's actually also, I think, the sense that much of the current literature that we talk about today is is reflecting that even though things have changed and we're not in Bourdieu's era anymore or not in the era of Stuart Hall with centralized television where everybody is watching the same programs, but still there is something about cultural inequality. So this is the question that we have today. How does cultural inequality work today now that culture seems to be more fluid, more open, more transnational and not as rigidly fixed within hierarchical systems that are based within the nation state. Yeah, at the same time, we also, in in, uh, in addition to that more empirical question, we also look at in what way the classic text that we last read last week still worked for, to understand this dynamic today. So we also look at how last week texts uh, actually can help us understand this new empirical dynamic. So uh, for this week, you prescribed for text, Rieselinde. That's one by Prieur and Savage, called uh, that's dealing with emerging cultural capital. One by Don Wenink about uh, cosmopolitan capital and a very interesting look at how parents try to invest cosmopolitan capital or actually stimulate cosmopolitan capital in their kids. One from Jana Michael. So that talks about authenticity and individuality um, and how that works in uh, fashion and uh, among young people in fashion and uh, and the musical tastes, and one by Lamont uh, with several others, and I have to be fair and give them their credits. Lamont and um, and Claire and Claire. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> yes, these <laughs> these authors, and that one is about the different ways in which modern cultural processes work to produce inequality on a more meso level. This may sound a little bit abstract, but we'll get to that. And she also identifies several processes such as identification and rationalization, including racial tensions um, uh, and how that might work. All right, um, so those are the readings of today. There are several commonalities among these very different, these different readings for this week. It's very interesting to see how they all try to deal with this question of culture and inequality today and how they all relate to Bourdieu in one way or another. So they all, I think all of them reference uh, Bourdieu and all of them actually argue that, okay, well, his key concepts are useful and his key uh, uh, way of understanding culture has been useful in the past it doesn't really fit today's developments and empirical uh, situation anymore so they all try to update Bourget yes. one way or another or try to develop his framework yes, a little bit right? right so so um, in the, in later in the in the readings we we'll also p- see people who are really much more critical of Bourdieu but these are so these are the you could say the loyalists so these are the people that, you know, see the problems with Bourdieu, but despite the problems, try to s- sort of 
use parts of his insights to understand contemporary uh, cultural developments. That do not try to throw away the baby no, with they the don't, bath water, so, and they the also, they're not real attacks. So even with Lamont, so we saw last week that she has attacked Bourdieu, but now she actually is, now she gives him credit for some developments and then moves on. These are all within this sort of broad school of Bourdieusian, post-Bourdieusians. People are trying to interpret new developments within similar sort of terms. Because one, what also spoke to me is that um, they use similar terms, but there's also... Uh, they avoid similar terms too. The the usual Bourgeoisian notion of domination can't be found anymore. Well, there's some of it, I think, in Lamont, but she ca- she already qualifies it that it isn't this black and white yeah, anymore that you have dominated and subordinated. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting that the sort of big, big sort of Marxist-like language that you see in the original Bourdieu has vanished a bit here. So instead you see sort of more boundary drawing, distinction, taste, cultural capital. So these, in a sense, are milder sort of words that people use to uh, describe these processes of exclusion. Uh, so, it's not so, so it's not about struggle anymore. It's not about domination, mm-hmm. but it's more about processes of distinction that are not as harsh. So the, the sort of the strongness or the, the sense of struggle somehow mm. has disappeared a bit from these readings. And I think that's very interesting if you compare it with last week. So it's a milder version. And I think that actually also may have something to do with the fact that, that everybody is mostly looking at upper classes. So most yeah. of these paper are, papers are about the distinction strategies of the upper middle classes or the semi-elites or the avant-garde. So this is really about... So people who are sort of high up, but not the highest in society and how they use distinction while they uh, know that they shouldn't, maybe. Right. So it's, it's, it's really about elites, actually, uh, uh, more than it is. Well, not elites, maybe like a difficult concept <laughs> yes, um, but, uh, for, for, for the listener. Uh, we are we are not in the same room, but I can still see uh, Giselinde through Zoom. So I see her cringe. like uh, cringe. cringe when I say the word, when I use the word elite. Yeah. So perhaps that's so, well, not the right term. Also, but so, this is also because later on in the in the podcast, we will talk about real elites when we will be talking with uh, Cousin and Chauvin, and they talk about mm-hmm. the super rich and their lifestyles. So that's really elite. I think what we what we discuss today is mostly is the sort of upper middle classes. So it's okay. not the super rich or the super elite. But these are people, so in a sense, you could say these are people that are dominating, that in some cases they really are involved in struggles, both with other upper middle class segments and with others but but it, this 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 sort of terminology is not there anymore so the no right all right so i will also try to avoid the word elite uh, but to get to these upper middle class actually to get into the first reading yeah. um because that one we start with pierre and savage today so uh, my first impressions of this uh, article is that it's uh, it's called emerging forms of cultural capital and it really tries to update Bourdieu, that's what I felt. It's also what I made, like my main note on top of the paper is actually, I've printed it out, is an update of Bourdieu for Cosmopolitan Times. Uh, could also be the subtitle in my view. And it tries to also uh, summarize, it's a very, I, I enjoyed this article because it's a nice way of summarizing and synthesizing some theoretical development since Bourdieu, uh, including uh, talk about the cultural omnivore. 
Um, I will ask you in a minute what that is, uh, uh, Gieselinde, but also um, providing some empirical evidence for their for their main claim that there's a new form of cultural capital today. So, um, Gieselinde, what is what is this new form of cultural capital? So what's interesting, let me start by saying, so this comes from two very, very large empirical projects. So one mm-hmm. by, by Savage and many others about uh, taste, lifestyle and consumption in the UK and another big one, by Prior in Denmark, and both have studied sort of tastes in the same sense as Bourdieu, so which people like what, what sort of clusters do we find, what sort of practices, and how is this related to social background? And they find um, similarities between the Danish and the Brits. Um, And so what they see are the new forms of cultural capital, and they mark uh, similar, different boundaries, but similar across these two countries. So it's not just about class, but it's also very much about age, about gender, and about race and ethnicity. So what they find is a sort of a cultural landscape that is more multidimensional. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's one of the differences. So rather than this sort of fixed hierarchical structure of base organized around classes, it's much more diverse there. And it's also especially among younger, more educated people, uh, they find different forms of distinction so it's first of all it's omnivorous and there will be a whole um, session devoted to the omnivore debate uh, because it's a big debate but mostly what it means is that middle classes people with more cultural capital are not looking at just one specific form of highbrow culture but they enjoy different sorts of culture including more lowbrow forms popular forms like pop music including sort of really not very high quality pop music um, popular literature, movies, television, so all sorts of non-traditional high culture can lowbrow low culture can also be appreciated as a form of high culture. More personal questions, so Giselinde, is this something you also noticed uh, over the past two decades that people around you, because um, I feel free to qualify as such, but as a professor, you're probably in this upper middle class. So if there's this idea that the people became more culturally, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> culturally omnivorous. Um, no, I think did you see I this think, happening yourself, or yeah, I'm probably the first, the first generation. So uh, that that saw this shift really strongly, also in uh, in sort of from the from education onwards. So I think the generation of my parents really was was uh, educated and socialized into this high culture system. You know, if you're if you have if you go to university, you read literature and you like classical music. And then they gradually changed, so they some of them, so my parents already listened to pop music, which was a, really a big deal at the time. And I think uh, I'm probably because of my generation, I'm almost fifty. Uh, actually, means that yeah, which actually means that I'm of the the generation that really is a part of the omnivores. That I have been sort of I I listen to classical music. I have had this really high culture, but I've also from early on you know, read comics and saw TV and uh, liked pop music. So this sort of in-between generation. And I think increasingly what we see is that it's omnivorous means that sort of really traditional highbrow forms really vanish from people's cultural diet, which means that younger people, even when they're university educated, usually don't go to a classical music anymore and even lack this sort of highbrow knowledge. 
Right, right. Just, to yeah. just to clarify, before we, <laughs> before we uh, uh, continue with what Peter and Savage have to say about this, so the unreversedness is also actually, you say it's not merely that people are straddling this divide between highbrow and lowbrow nowadays, making it more or less meaningless, but actually that the entire highbrow thing is It's becoming more anymore. marginal. It's yeah, actually becoming right. much yeah. more marginal. Uh, so right now, I think uh, younger, educated people tend to have, tend to prefer a sort of quality versions of popular genres. So yeah, you watch okay. TV, but you like really good TV shows. Uh, you like music, but you like good pop music. So not any, but you like a specific sort of electronic music. You like indie rock and not everything. So you like, you like hip hop, but you like really good old fashioned 1980s rare hip hop rather than yeah, commercial, right. something like that. So you have to be, so it's about distinctions within popular genres. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is also when I mean many listeners will probably uh, uh, will probably um, uh, have experiences is when you open up um, Netflix. Uh, you nowadays get this number ten top ten popular in your country, and um, there's this awkward thing where you, at least in my experience, you don't always like the things that that are number one, two, or three, uh, but sometimes you actually do. But like the all the other stuff in Netflix, there's the there's everything's there. Um, and everyone's using Netflix and everyone's first watching TV, but so people tend to, to select the more the more high quality kind of pop. Yeah. Uh, so this TV is how products. so this yeah. is how you distinguish. And it yeah. also means, by the way, that to be an omnivore, you actually have to have a lot of cultural knowledge. Because you have to be able to select from every genre the quality stuff. So it's actually much more mm-hmm. difficult than the sort of classical highbrow thing, where you know, if you wanted right. to, to have good music you just bought tickets to the main concerts in the, the in the hall. local concert yeah. hall and then you would have you know the thing and you yeah. would see all the other people with a good taste from your specific place and now you have to choose uh, so there is a lot at stake in this choosing so in a nutshell omniverseness as P- i think peterson and kern are the, are the are the authors who are like the scholars who came who found this out but Pierre and savage don't necessarily agree right they're not uh, very no, they much say, uh, so what they what they point to is actually what i just saw so they don't agree with some of the versions of the omnivorous so they say but what is really typical about this emerging cultural capital is sort of this preference for the the good versions of popular genres but also a focus on the how rather than the what's. So, and this is exactly what you just said about Netflix. So what's important in distinction today is not that uh, you have seen the latest show on Netflix that's supposed to be really quality, but you can also have seen something that is maybe not as prestigious, but you look at it in the right way. Uh, so people can go, for instance, if you go to a concert, people can go, people of very different backgrounds can be at the same concert but they will appreciate it in different ways. So there will be people who appreciate it in a sort of for, for the quality, and it's really original and it's really innovative, but other people can be standing beside you and just you know enjoying it because it's nice to dance or because they like the star. So it's also, it's about the, yeah, about the mode of appreciation. So, right, so it's also about, you know, going to, the, going to see Tenet, yeah. this new Christopher Nolan film, and some people, you know, just enjoying exactly. the very good action scenes, which are actually, yeah. in, my, in my experience, were actually quite good. And, 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 but then also people talking about the deeper 
philosophical yes. concept behind the film, etc. And writing in the New Yorker about exactly. this. And so that's yeah, so okay. that's uh, that's this emerging form of capital that you have a knowing mode of appreciation is how Puyer and Savage call it. So there's one thing that I find interesting here is that we. You call it capital, but is it capital in the sense that in my reading of Bourdieu, for something to qualify as capital, it also has to do with excluding others or dominating others, right? Or like it has to be able to be converted into a power position. And is it this way with this knowing mode of appropriation? Does it necessarily have to do with an inequality thing or is it just separate? Yeah, well, that's, that's actually it's uh, a core question. So we return to this several times uh, because... Um, I think Lamont would say sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And that's really complicated. Mm-hmm. So it has so to be part of certain networks, to uh, feel at home in universities or in specific other more exclusive groups, it really helps to be able to talk about tenant, for instance, in this sort of multi-level way. So it helps to be able to, you know, because this is how you make friends and this is how you make connections. So you go to the... Uh, cinema together and then afterwards you discuss what the film was about uh, so this is how you make friends so this is how you solidify your social networks by displaying this specific sort of knowledge so it's a form of this is really a way of converting it into uh, resources access to networks status uh, being able to feel at home in exclusive or relatively exclusive surroundings so this is how it works and that's actually also the way for all the other elements of emerging cultural capital that uh, Prior and Savage mentioned. So apart from the omnivorousness, it's also they mentioned they mentioned yeah, what were the um, other things? Uh, there are also different forms of cultural knowledge. So being tech savvy, for instance, is something that they point to as an emerging form. So being able to understand things about how devices work or being good at games. Which is, and there you really see this sort of aging professor sort of <laughs> trying to come to terms with, with uh, so also sort of technology now really is a way of distinguishing yourself in specific, uh, in specific ways. And it's also cosmopolitanism. So what's really different is also what you mentioned is that it's, I mean, it's about knowledge, not only cultural products, not only from your um, direct country or your surroundings, but people have the pick from cultural products from everywhere and this this capacity to maneuver and to understand culture from many different places also is a form of capital that is i think much more important among younger people than among older people and then one that i personally appreciate that you also mention is that again with a sort of uh, bemused sound that the younger people and the emerging cultural capital also seems to revolve around bodily and fitness capital uh, so looking good, taking care of your body, specific sort of healthy behaviors, going to the gym, but also eating specific stuff, I think is a very central form <laughs> of, of emerging cultural capital that is really very typical of, of younger people as a means of distinction that, that really, and it's also interesting because it's something that actually is moving from younger people to older people which is a very unusual form of cultural transmission. And personally, I can say that really is a very big shift in cultural distinction. So I remember that even when I was a student, it was absolutely not done to be too sporty. So that was to look healthy, to go to the gym. That was like completely um, out of order, like not, not classy at all. 
a little embarrassing. And now this is really something that has shifted. So it's like a 180 degrees turn there in bodily culture. So, there, yeah, there's mm-hmm. many interesting yeah. things there I, want, yeah. I would like to pick up on, but that's yeah. uh, we could fill in another yes. entire episode with some of these things. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll also return one yeah. one time to this bodily capital thing because that's something you yeah. have researched yes. uh, too. I just wanted to pick up a little bit on this. Um, there's also this, yeah, I also found this idea about the text being text heavy interesting, but I'd actually also like to surpass that and go actually more to the cosmopolitan side of things. Uh, like you said, uh, uh, it's also this it does also a distinction strategy to like things from around the world so that, that for instance on netflix you don't only like the american television but also for instance this brazilian three percent series which is really good it also reminded me one way or another of this um this sketch by this dutch comedian misha vertheim where he talks about how he's on a party and tries to when people talk about literature mm-hmm. what he says and he, <laughs> yeah. you probably know this sketch i think uh Gieselinde, but he uh he, he he actually in the sketch he I'm I'm not redoing it but he the baseline is that he actually doesn't read that much but he wants to still come across as you know well cultured so then he constantly invents new things to get himself uh, to to look more distinctive so it, it ends up with him saying that he reads Japanese literature and then people ask like okay well what kind of Japanese literature and he says well. Japanese really young authors that haven't been <laughs> translated yet. So that's his way to also signal this cosmopolitan cultural capital. I also think that sketch is about 10 years old now, perhaps, but it's a way that signals that cosmopolitan culture, uh, cultural capital is actually uh, uh, can serve yeah, a distinction and also, strategy. By the okay, way, there's so, also domination and struggle there. So if you take it to the extreme, you see that it's actually, it is a subtle way of, um, yeah. Um, showing that you're definitely superior be- to others it's uh getting definitely the upper hand be- yeah. yeah because in yeah because if he's in this in this sketch he also explains that the further he gets into this con that he that he invents the less people are actually uh, uh still participating in the conversation but he tries to be the top the top dog actually the 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 yeah the most cultured one Right, so this steers me a little bit to the second reading that is also about cosmopolitan uh, capital, the one by uh, Don Wenink. Here we see uh, education uh, coming to the fore as a as a way to invest, to, to reproduce actually certain social distinction patterns. So Giselinda, what struck you most about this, this reading? Yeah, I think what... Um, so the article is about, is quite old right now. So what struck me in rereading it now is actually that in, that English learning English some time ago actually functioned as a, <laughs> yeah. as a matter of of getting the upper hand as a means of distinction, whereas now I think it wouldn't be that much. So this is really a sort of early steps towards a, a transformation that we now see the results of, which is that English is really has become a way to show a, a specific form of cultural capital and a specific sort of. Uh, semi-elite background as a new form yeah, in, in the, the European, European context, context which yeah. we'll also see in the rise of international education. So this was the beginning of English language secondary schools, I think, which has now happened in most of Europe, where people go to English-speaking schools and take regular courses. Um, and this is actually a strategy, and what's, what Wenning shows is that it's a very active, conscious strategy of specific groups of parents to prepare their children for better positions. So this is really the active accumulation of cultural capital in education, which is, of course, the arena 
where cultural capital is most important and also where the concept has been invented. And it's the, it's the sort of strategic behavior of parents that really struck me. So this is like the step before having these kids that have these emerging forms of cultural capital. This is their parents sort of pushing them in that direction. No, I, well, yeah, what I found interesting here is also that this, so of course parents always want the best for their children, at least that's that's what I hope. But what I found interesting here is that this cosmopolitan uh, attitude or this cosmopolitanism is also qualified in this article. Like there's two types of cosmopolitan parents in this sense. Uh, he talks about uh, the dedicated cosmopolitans and the pragmatic cosmopolitans, right? So the dedicated ones are that actually, that are the true cosmopolitans, right? Yeah, the Am dedicated ones are more the, 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 it's partly ideology and partly habitus. So these are people that really have lots of um, connections around the world and lots of international experience. So partly it's really their 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 self, their, their socialized self that is very close. But it's also, there is a strong ideological component there. Uh, so you see that this sort of, Cosmopolitanism also comes with this notion of we should all be open to others, we should all be connected yeah. to the world, we should be tolerant, it is important, etc. So this is uh, sort of really like the like an ingrained habitus that is sort of really part of these parents and it's also for them it seems more like the natural thing to do to send their children to these kinds of schools and make them into cosmopolitans. Mm-hmm. And then there are the, the other parents that really make, the yeah, pragmatic the pra- ones, that really make strategic choices. I think, where will my child be most successful? I think there it's also interesting that in the regression analysis, that it's also that, that this tends to be um, a sort of education that is preferred, preferred for boys, which also shows that yeah, parents, that it's, it's really gendered, gendered yeah. is that parents really, at least especially in this strategic behavior, that they tend to sort of put more pressure on boys to to do these sort of strategic um, forms of accumulation of capital. Yeah, what I found really interesting uh, there too is that they, uh, so first indeed the degenerate thing was really striking to me. Um, and I, perhaps I thought maybe it also has to do with the fact that parents don't want to send, don't want this global career for their for their daughters, and they think that's a little bit icky uh, when a, a daughter moves abroad. Perhaps that, but then also in the article, there's this, there's this, um, there's this respondent, and, and um, that one is highlighted because it it speaks for more respondents and for more people. The that says like, yeah, we, and it's really a pragmatic cosmopolitan thing. Like, okay, he, we want him to learn English, but we actually do not want him to go abroad. But we just think he gets a head start in the Netherlands. So this is of course research. Uh, that's done in the Netherlands, but there you see like a pragmatic thing uh, that's actually at odds with the ideology of cosmopolitanism. Like they don't want him to move abroad. They don't want him to be this world citizen. They just want him to be uh, to to have a head start at university and and in in his career here. Yeah. So I found that really really uh, striking. Um, another thing that I found a little bit interesting here is that. It's cosmopolitanism. He talks about the cosmopolitanism of the uh, uh, of the upper middle classes, but at times he also signals a kind of racist undertone in there. Like they like openness to other people. He doesn't call it that as much. He doesn't use the word racism there, but they do exclude like a particular type of foreigners. These upper middle yeah, class people, there right? Is, so, I think this is one of the big problems of these new forms of openness. Uh, 
which is typical of um, you know people with more cultural capital. Yeah, there are some remarks, and it's interesting. So the people correct themselves and say, "No, no, I didn't like the people around in the neighborhood of the school." Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but they did say it. So it's clear that so it's clear yeah. that cosmopolitanism is so. They they seem to have a specific kind of people in mind. So nice, yeah. intellectual, educated, Western. Uh, etc. Sort of uh, international people that speak English, and of course the so and and the cosmopolitanism always has been and now I like to use the word elite elitist term, so it's also it's been always associated with different forms of, um, you know, uh, international culture and international intellectuals and, but of course that's a little odd because if you want to be open to. To all cultures, it would also mean that you're open to the people with a migration background in your own city or in your own country. Uh, and it mm. also means, of course, that maybe the most cosmopolitan people that we have, that the people with most cosmopolitan capital, would be these people of with migration backgrounds. Yeah. And they're usually not included yeah. in this notion of cosmopolitan capital. Whereas, I mean, evidently, these must be people that have great ease living in different languages, switching from one cultural sort of framework to another. Uh, but this particular form of cosmopolitan is indeed, I mean, this is empirically the fact, this is a form of cosmopolitan that isn't appreciated much and doesn't function as capital in the same way isn't socially recognized as this, but it's a bit odd. So specific forms of openness are supposed to be good and other forms of openness are supposed to be problematic and they're also not called cosmopolitanism. Yeah, so what I found interesting there is, so I, I kept wondering like, okay, some people we call expats, other we call migrants, and um, with this form of cosmopolitanism, I also wondered then, is this... Uh, is this a, a term we reserve for upper class and upper middle class people? Or is this actually a term that we re reserve for white people or European and American people? And or both at the same time, of course, do they intersect in one way or another? So I, I struggle with this a little bit. So I was also wondering, uh, it didn't it wasn't it wasn't discussed in 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 much of the literature. Lamont does discuss this racial thing uh, or does discuss race, but um, I was wondering about that too. Like, in a sense, is cosmopolitan capital not a white, uh, whites, a white concept, or at maybe, least like yeah. So it's it's a slippery concept. So so the, very often, right, when you start uh, discussing terms that are applied mostly to people with more status, when you sort of peel them off, then more and more problematic implications and connotations become evident. So cosmopolitan, yes. So it's supposed to be European. Then maybe it's European and uh, American, maybe right now it's European and American, and also as where times it's East Asian. Uh, but it's so it's more difficult to imagine cosmopolitanism coming from different continents. And maybe if it is, then it would have to be, you know, like really, really educated people from India. Um, so there are so all sorts of implications in each of these terms that include and exclude others. Um, and this is, you know, like migrant and expat. Basically, they're both people who, you know, moved from one place to the other. But the words imply a completely different sort of people. And obviously, this is about class and about race and about employment status. So in these, and this is exactly, of course, the problem with, with notions of culture and inequality. So you make it about something that sounds like a descriptive term, 
but in these descriptive terms, inequalities are sort of, they're, they're buried under the descriptive term, and cosmopolitanism is a good example of this, clearly. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes there's also, there can be, because, and that's, but perhaps that's also something for a different episode altogether, but like in these conceptual terms, in these concepts, there can be uh, a normative connotation also because cosmopolitanism in itself, I mean, maybe it's not a, co- a normative connotation by sociologists, but in itself, it's a term that's also freely being used in 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 the public debate. So in that sense, there's also that issue, uh, I think, a little bit. But that's perhaps something yeah, for people, later time. It's interesting. I so yeah. I think many studies show that people are, if you dig, people are aware of the problems. And I think this is also interesting in the mm. the article by Jana Michael. Where, which is indeed about people who are, you know, very aware of being open and tolerant and liking everything, and at the same time, you know, sort of uh, understanding or feeling at least that it doesn't really work that way. And of course, openness is a very, as an ideal, can be very exclusive, and very distinctive and elitist yeah. and uh, superior. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's. Yeah, that's actually a very good segue into that article. Um, <laughs> and so uh, Jana Michael, she wrote an article and it basically looked at uh, uh, how it's called. It's not hip to be a hipster. It's really not hip to be a hipster. And this was published in 2015. So some of the listeners may remember, but hipster was a term that was really hip in a way 10 years ago. Uh, I think it was also used very uh in a denouncing way to denounce others like if you were hip you were or if, hip is a good thing but back then hipster was also really a term in popular culture that was used to say okay these people are fake more or less and she sort of dives into that by looking at people um in various european cities about how they navigate authenticity uh trendiness uh and being in the know so Giselinde, can you perhaps elaborate on what this being in the know is. Is this similar to the knowing yeah. mode of cultural capital yeah, that we much, saw before? But yeah, much so, but even stronger. So she looks at a very specific group of what she calls voracious cultural consumers. So people, and, so people who are really uh, trying to uh, stay up to date with the newest in culture. So very often they work in cultural sectors, they live in different places, they live in... So they're really, they're really the cool people. So they, uh, they go mm-hmm. to all the newest bands, they have very distinctive fashion tastes, and they try, try to be ahead of trends. And what is really explores is the sort of the, the paradox that is inside of trying to stay ahead of trends because at the same time these people really want to be authentic and they think it's really important to be themselves and to be real and to be true to themselves and to be different from all the others and at the same time they're super trendy and trying to keep up with this so this it what it really explores is the the problem of being fashionable um so how mm-hmm. to be fashionable and at the same time to be authentic and I think this is interesting and also very typical of, of contemporary uh, politics of cultural distinction in the sense that people, especially these people, they, they know. So they've read the literature, they know their Bourdieu, they understand the dynamics, they understand, and still they want to be hip and cool and in the know. So it's really about, and that's also why the article is is a little, uh, the, sort of the, 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 sometimes their arguments don't really make sense. So internally it's, it's incoherent in a way. 
So they have parts, several parts of a puzzle that never really fit. Because if you want to be fashionable, then how can you be authentic? And if you want to be open, uh, how can you also look down upon so many other people who are not as fashionable as you? So they try to have their cake and eat it several times at once. So that's why they're, yeah. You, you see yeah. this interesting yeah. verbal gymnastics that they get into, like, oh yeah, but it, it's just not my thing, but if it's other people's thing, that's fine, but actually I don't yeah. like it. There's this thing where one, like a German uh, a German interviewee talks about uh, yeah. Schlager music and that he doesn't like it, but and then he sort of, he actually just before told the interviewer that, that he that he liked uh, uh, liked to be open to other people. So there's this there's this throughout this entire article, and that's why it's an interesting read. There's this tension yeah. that's at the heart of the paradox of fashion. I feel like you follow fashion to to, to become to, yourself to, to distinguish yourself and from to be other. yourself. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah yeah, and that's a that's a very interesting strange thing that's always happening when you look at fashion. I think, uh, but in this sense she really gets into this notion of authenticity. And this is interesting, right? Um, because when I read it, I thought, okay, these people try to be authentic, but it's not just people trying to be authentic. You see this also in the cultural goods that we consume more or less. So if you, you can go to a supermarket, uh, well, supermarket or uh, any hip thing that tries to tries to explain how authentic it is what they're doing like uh for instance you see this especially in the field of food i feel uh where there's much attention for family businesses that they're very good and how old the beers you're actually drinking on literally like if you re if you if you drink a heineken and the glass it says it's anno whatever um and the same goes for when you're in a restaurant and they try to express how 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 honest and authentic uh, the places and also the, the, the methods they're using. Uh, you see this also in the diets that are prescribed these days. So that's what I found interesting too. It works both ways. It's just not the consumers. It's also in the consumption goods. And I, I notice I'm talking in a very economic way right now about culture. Um, but it's just something that I noticed or that I that struck me when so, I read it. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's everywhere authenticity and I think many people have argued that it's actually it's a sort of new um, dimension of cultural quality so if you look at the older understandings of cultural highbrow then it's about refined and complicated and you have to learn and you have to you know it's an acquired taste and all these things uh, and I think interestingly sort of in the wake is like a counter movement towards the rising consumer culture so it's looking for the antithesis of what is consumer culture, which is authentic, which is real and not mass produced and not plastic and local, and you can trace it back to actual people. So it's another dimension, and it's a dimension of, of uh, quality that's also culture and that can be appropriated by different group. But it's a very so, but it's a very uh, contradictory dimension. Uh, so first of all, it comes from a specific reflection on a process that we're all part of, which is consumer society. So having fashion that changes all the time, having food that's mostly mass produced. So it's a reflective sort of understanding of how processes work and sort of stepping away from that. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's very difficult to to grasp because what is authenticity? So when you when do you know when you're authentic? So you have to be yourself. But what is yourself? So there is this sense of you can get there, but you can never grasp it. 
when you say this, I also think like, okay, but if no one's authentic, then aren't we all authentic? Like there's this, it's, it's everyone is their self in a sense. Like, but these people sort of also in their reflection on this consumer society say like, no, most people are like, there's implicit there. They don't say it out loud, but it's this implicit assumption that no, we're all automatons, robots who are just consuming whatever is marketed to us. Except and, for uh, me. And they Except try to step away from this. Yeah, they Everybody, try to step so from, this away is, from so this. It's, so it is distinctive. It's a form of boundary drawing. So nobody is authentic except for me because I'm authentic because look at the clothes that I wear that I bought at H&M but that I wear in a very authentic way. But it's kind of yeah, snobby well, but in that everything, sense. This is all about... All of these articles is about <laughs> snobbery. So these are all articles about the snobbery strategies of, of educated people in, uh, in contemporary Europe. Uh, but but yeah. snobbery, I mean, especially if you believe that you're egalitarian and democratic, then snobbery is a problematic uh, thing. So that's why people are doing such complicated things and trying to, yeah. Yeah, and that's also why... Yeah, why they why they engage yes. in these verbal gymnastics when a, when a researcher when a sociologist yeah. comes by to ask them about it, they're like, yeah, but no, but I'm yes. actually oh, but I'm not. So it's actually the from yeah. the what to the how to the yeah. extreme. So this is you would super say. extreme so because a, these are people that that um, that consume pretty much the same things as other people within the same system, but are hyper hyper reflexive about this and sort of position themselves vis a vis this. So I think the the example of you know being able to buy something that comes from H and M and saying but I I wear it very differently from all the other people and that's why it's different I think it's the extreme example of this move from the what to the how so if you if you present yourself and position yourself effectively enough you can basically get away with everything but it takes a lot of explanation. And it's not, and mind you, it's not fake. It's just the extreme version of the contradiction that we see here. All right. So it is from the from the uh, from the what to the how in the extreme, and um, and it's a very uh, empirically rich article. And I had another question about this. So is it there's also some sort of irony underlying the way people consume supposedly lowbrow things, right? So they buy these H and M garments, but in an ironic way uh, just like people go to blockbuster movies and like them in an ironic way so and i think the essential movie that's actually movie series that's 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 the that's the epitome of this is james bond which is like very vulgar in many ways but people like it for its yeah but in an ironic way like everyone knows that you you know so i, I wondered about in this article if that's the case too like if there's sure, an ironic sure. mode she of, mentions of that too that there is an irony in the way that people talk about this and also that they engage in ironic consumption so they people realize of course i mean these are smart these are very smart mm -hmm. reflexive people so irony is a way of of you know of having two truths at the same time so that's what they do the truth of how they distinguish themselves or how they follow fashion is the truth of of being uh, an authentic person and to make them both right at the same time irony can be a solution uh, but it's also indeed as in james bond it has become part of popular culture uh, so in james bond it's even it's become part of the series that it doesn't take itself too seriously so which is a very interesting way yeah. of having sort of <laughs> telling a narrative on different strategies so here's the action movie 
which is just for fun and everybody can like it. So here's the irony, which shows that we also know that this is a little silly. And actually, Jana Michael has, with some other students, has done a very, very nice uh, project also on karaoke singing. Uh, where they, oh, where right. they did, did observations. Last weekend I was still... Where they did observations of <laughs> people, you know, going to karaoke, which is also which you can only do if you are a bit ironic about it, specific, especially if you are, you know, uh, an urban, urban not taking European, yourself too seriously. Exactly. Right? So you're not supposed to take yourself too seriously. Yeah. So their irony is performed in very many very clever ways, and that's again, it's a way of having your cake and eat it. So you can have the fun. Of, of singing and making a fool of yourself and, you know, drinking a lot and having a nice night. And at the same time, you can preserve your self-image because you also know, of course, that you shouldn't really be doing that. And for someone like you, so, it's, so you can do both at once. And this is one of the, the, the key solutions to, to the sort of paradoxes of distinction. Right, it's very interesting. I have to think now because last weekend I was actually karaokeing uh, last Saturday evening, and uh, and we noticed that uh, I was with my uh, with my partner, and we noticed that that they changed the system, so now it displays a score after each song you sang, and we didn't like it because it's, <laughs> it's not, not about, about singing well. It's indeed about this ironic exactly. like making a fool of yourself, yeah. and also the songs yeah. you choose. You know, Andre Haas is exactly. for Dutch listeners, yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. You know, <laughs> um, so yeah, that um, that is really funny. I'm uh, I'm sure yeah. that. Uh, I would I would like to read that that research on karaoke. Um, all right, so this draws us also to um, to the last uh, the last um, reading of today of this week actually, and that's the one by Lamont, Belgian, and Claire, and they uh, try to update distinction theory for the twenty first century. So I thought this was the most theoretically dense of them all. Um, but also the most, yeah, uh, the least empirical one, I feel, although there are some empirical illustrations here and there. Uh, but it really, uh, it's quite complex, but in my experience, it, it pays out to bear with it. Um, they make this complex, but in my view, quite elegant theoretical argument um, that there's been much research in uh, cognitive sociology, am I right, Gieselinde, about inequality. And there's these several dimensions of... Uh, to look at inequality uh, before. So what what's that about so exactly? It is, um, so it's a theoretical paper that integrates a lot of the work that has been done by Lamont and also the two other authors who are her PhD students, but also many other work in especially American sociology, trying to think about how inequality works and the role that culture plays in this. So it tries to integrate a lot of different things, really updating the notion of boundary drawing distinction for the 21st century. And the argument that they make is that cultural processes are always, so processes of meaning making are always at the heart of creating and reproducing inequalities. And some of these cultural processes are the processes that we talked about, like identifying with others, stigmatizing others, uh, so ways of maintaining and, and drawing group boundaries. But it actually expands this and says the same sort of processual approach you can see with many other processes where also where uh, differences between people are marked and they can, but do not necessarily, become uh, 
unequal. So they can lead to all sorts of advantage and disadvantage. So this is a very complex argument because basically what it does, it takes what we know and sort of builds a much larger structure around it of other theories about inequality and about different sorts of uh, cultural processes. Yeah, and it also tries to yeah, it also tries to do many things at once, I feel, because it also tries to make an argument about sociology in itself and about analytical sociology. Um, that's not something we're going to discuss right now, but there's much yeah. in there. So uh, it's, yeah, so I like it. So I think, I think. In, this, in this course, it will be a paper that we return to many times, but I think because, because it also touches on so many different processes. So apart from the processes of identification, and classification, so what sort of person am I looking at? Is this a person like me or a person like someone else? It also talks about racialization and really shows about how processes of meaning making also create race, uh, also sometimes implicit or explicit, or how processes of uh, rationalization, so putting people into sort of sorting them by how well they fit into systems, also can be ways of creating inequalities. So it's a broader understanding of this, and it's also it it under it also distinguishes what they call three dimensions of inequality, uh, and that's also and so the first dimension is inequality that leads to material uh, resources, so money, power, uh, possessions, stuff, capital, and the second is about symbolic resources. So this is where the sort of Bourdieu style understanding comes in, and then she adds recognition as another form of symbolic resource, so not just status, but also being recognized by others as sort of maybe the another form of symbolic power or status or belonging. Yeah, yeah. also being, being, rec being recognized exactly. as legitimate yeah. in a way, so right? That's a, yeah. And then yeah. there are also, she points to more like network or spatial uh, mechanisms of social inequality where... Um, for instance, if you live in a specific neighborhood or if you connect it with specific networks, that can also be a way of um, uh, getting access to specific resources and gaining power or being excluded or included. So it connects, first it brings together a number of different understandings of social inequality, and then it shows how many different processes of meaning making are, are implicated in this. So apart from the cultural ones, also others. So this is a really complicated, big argument. But what I think, what I think helps is to think about this, about it as a process. So I think this is the really important takeaway point for now. So it moves from substance. So if you think about cultural capital, it really, it very often is about you have to like this, you have to like opera, you have to know this, you have to know this movie. Yeah. And what this does, it moves to the things that you have to do, the things that you have to know, to the sort of processes that happen in interaction. So like when, uh, when you go to university and you're in a class and everybody talks about this specific movie and you haven't seen it or you didn't understand it, then it's not about the movie, but it's about the conversation that happens where you feel excluded and the others don't. So it moves from the sort of list of things that you can tick off as this I know, this I know, from knowledge to really to processes where culture, all sorts of cultural resources are sort of uh, used and called upon yeah. to, to exclude or include. Yeah, like so they're used and uh, what I understood it is they're used and embedded and uh, constructed in, an, in, in this classificatory schema, right? They're like in these 
ways in which you can say, okay, but this is good, this is not good. So that's also where much is, so that's where it also builds a little bit, I think, on, on cognitive uh, sociology that it also looks at, at uh, it tries to take insights from this micro sociology to about meaning making and also more, not about meaning making, but about, you know, judging and good, bad, uh, to elevate this to the meso level, thereby connecting it to these three dimensions that you mentioned before, because those are more on the macro level. So that's also where it's quite subtle, I think, is that it it really looks at this in-between level without ignoring the micro and the macro, because they constantly talk about also about, okay, but these meso processes are also embedded in this institutional, organizational setup. Um, so that's where I that's what I really liked about it, but it is quite abstract and theoretical. Is there a way we can make it a little bit more, you already tried this with this conversation about movies in the classroom, but uh, perhaps this, this point about about racialized things, because you just said like race can also be constructed yeah, in so that I think way. Racial, yeah. uh, perhaps, I there, think there, there... Um, racialization, I think is a very interesting example also because it works very well as an, as an example in, in cross-cultural settings. So the, the way that people are made into a um, member of a specific racial category is something that really differs greatly from one country to another. Uh, and we're used to American literature where racialization usually is about white versus black. So underlying the American system is a binary system where people are made uh, white and black. Uh, and it comes with a lot of clues, including clues that don't really have to do with color, but really with other things that forms of black culture. And I have, I remember living in the US that it actually happened to me several times that I had been speaking to someone for quite some time. And then this person would tell me, you know, because I'm black and I would like, what? You're black? How are you black? I didn't notice you're black. Because the clues that I have, I think tend to be derived from mostly an understanding of maybe, you know, something skin color and hair and things like that general but it's also yeah. but in the u.s it's also a cultural understanding that for instance you can see from from the names that people have uh, and specific modes of mm. speech that i didn't understand mm. so this was and very often you understand cultural processes from the moment where where they go wrong and it's really so my understanding of, of blackness as a cultural category in the netherlands really didn't fit the american understandings where i now I know that if someone is called Latanya, she must be black, even though she's very light-skinned, because with that name, you are uh, supposed to be black in the sense that you're part of black culture because it's felt to be a black name. Yeah, and I right. think the same will happen also in different European countries where these processes of racialization that are connected with forms of inequality, that, uh, that they are slightly different and you can make interesting mistakes. So I think in the Netherlands, where both of us come from, I think we don't tend to think of, of people from Indonesian descent. So people who come from uh, the former colony of the Dutch East Indies, very often we don't tend to think of them as non-white, even they are visibly of Asian descent. And I think this is also something that changes greatly if you go to different places. So they all of a sudden they will be Asian if they go to the UK, uh, whereas in the Netherlands, we would sort of treat them also in terms of cultural references. We would probably first approach them in terms of being the same and sharing this whiteness. And it leads to, and it sets in motion, all sorts of interactional processes that, that benefit or harm people 
in a very real way. And with the American example, I think it really was a cultural clue that I missed. So the name is a cultural, it's a bit of cultural information, it's a cultural clue. So where does the racialization happen in the, in the societal sort of meaning systems that you have around what it means to be white or what it means to be black? Yeah, and what I what I what I found interesting about this perspective and the way that she explains our racialization is essentially a cultural process, is that of course for I mean uh, it speaks for itself that for a very long time, especially in the United States, this has been um, a racialization uh, invoked by by the by the dominant whites uh, white class um, so to say by white people. But she, in her writing, she, uh, Lamont uh, uh, and others also allow for, um, she says that doesn't necessarily always have to be the case. When we talk about how these cultural processes work, including racialization, there can be room for subordinate, so-called subordinate, uh, subordinated people to, to also try to change these, these classificatory schemes and try to change these cultural processes to their benefit, right? So um, the blackness in that sense in the United States can also be infused with new meanings and new processes that can be liberating actually rather than... Uh, restrictive uh, uh, or subjugating. Yes. Restrictive, yeah. yeah no, exactly. Right? So we will talk about this more also later in the podcast when we are talking about race and ethnicity in popular music, which is a, a clear place where racialization has been, you know, exploited and changed and played with and toyed with, of course, in, in many mm-hmm. interesting ways, also because blackness has was turned into something good, a sign of quality when it came to music. So there is a very interesting example of racialization sort of being used as sort of the invert um, status hierarchies. Uh, so what in general, I think what is interesting about this perspective is that Lamont and her colleagues, they really say that these processes are open-ended. So, and I think this is the the really the big difference with the sort of classics where if you read Bourdieu but also if you read Hall even though he tries to so it's almost it's like this sort of closed system it's a suffocated system mm-hmm. where really where mobility seems very very di- difficult and even if it changes um, you know the inequalities remain the same and this is also what you sense if you read Pierre and Savage sure there are different forms it's different, but in the end, we still look at societies where those who are in power um, have cultural systems that keep them in power and that allow them to look down upon people who have less status and less cultural capital. So there is this sense of like a closed system or a loop. And in the model that Lamont proposes, she says the outcomes are open-ended. So it might lead to more inequality, it might lead to reproduction, but it's an empirical question and we don't know. And I think this is, a, this is an important sort of also escape from the older models that seem very deterministic. So those in power remain in power, those who don't have power will, they have to adapt and sometimes a few of them will trickle up, but mostly the system is stable, stabilizes itself. Yeah. And that's that's also something I really really enjoyed in this reading uh, uh, from Lamont and our colleagues. Is I also wrote down in my notes it's not yeah. as depressing mm-hmm. as, as as some of the classics. Like there's more room for, um, yeah, for uh, resisting uh, a system in a sense that that can be unequal and unfair. 
and that's 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 quite interesting also to see also there's one final thing i want to touch upon when it comes to lamont before we wrap up because we're also running out of time we talked about racialization just now but she also makes a very nice uh, builds upon they also build upon um the barbarian notion of, of rationalization and specifically also looks at uh uh, standardization and evaluation and I had to think she so she explains they explain how evaluation is a cultural process that also can lead to inequality um, in all kinds of systems and uh, in all kinds of situations and I had to think of so she exp- they explain how, evalu- how how there's this constant evaluation uh, thing going on and how that can perpetuate sort of certain inequalities and create certain inequalities and I had to think about uh, teaching evaluations, actually, because I know uh, from uh, colleagues uh, that they, from um, female colleagues, that they tend to be gendered in a way uh, that they are. And I think this has to do with the way the questions are posed in, eva- in this evaluation scheme in how teaching is evaluated, that they're more beneficial to men than to women, um, in a sense, or at least they're not like they're... Uh, they are unfair to women. I think um, yeah, I think there is actually I think there's actually more going on. It is right that that evaluations are very sexist. Apart from the way that the questions are asked, what happens is that is that people are evaluated sort of relative to a sort of stereotype that people have in their mind. So people have in their mind. It's again, it's a form of cognitive sociology, and I think this is very often how inequality works. So people have a sort of standard image in their mind of this is you know this is what a firefighter looks like this is what a you know this is what a a professor looks like so if you ask people what a professor looks like uh they think of an elderly man with gray hair and a beard and the more you deviate from this the less convincing you are in a sense so you don't fit the, Mm. the schema and because you don't fit the schema you are uh parsed as somehow lacking and also a bit little dissonant I think this is also this is I think the 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 classification bit or the categorization so people are put in pigeonholes and if people don't fit the pigeonholes or if they don't fit the the categories that people have in their mind uh it tends to work against them. And I think this is also mm-hmm. a very good example in effect of one of these processes of meaning making uh where mm-hmm. where the the process of interpretation is actually the process where the inequality that already exists is again reinforced. Right. So that's that's also, and when it comes to these evaluation schemes, then because they're built upon like these notions of how uh, how, for instance, a firefighter should look, then they they also get a life of themselves, yeah. right? These these evaluation schemes and these these rationalization schemes, yeah. All right. Um, it's almost time to wrap up. I think. Is there a final thing you want to say to this uh, about this article, Giselinda? I think the important thing is that this art, this is the kind of article is that that we will return to. So I think in any course there are articles that you read and then you mm. have one main takeaway point and then you're done, and then you have articles that you know you read and the first time you actually it's very difficult to understand and it seems very dense and what is this about? But it's sort of you return to it and return to it and it gradually sort of. Uh, grows upon you and it becomes clear what the point is and what sort of problem someone is trying to solve and this is the second type of article so if you don't understand it right away that's very natural i don't think anyone does 
Right, so there's a lot to unpack and we only unpacked a couple of things here, but there's much more yes. to unpack. That's actually the bottom line. And we also nicely put it at the end of our podcast, so you were drawn into yeah. this in the podcast right until the end, <laughs> exactly. until the difficult part. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> this was also a strategy to the listener. Right, to wrap up, um, there's something Giselle needs to say about the assignments for yes. this session. So this session, like all the all the session, comes with an assignment. Uh, the assignment this week is actually... Uh, rather easy and something that came up uh, already several times during this conversation. The question is, how are these forms of cultural capital uh, converted into resources? So that is because that is, in the end, the trick of cultural capital is that you have a specific form of cultural knowledge, so you know what to do when you sing karaoke, or you know how you talk about tenet, or you know what sort of music is cool, or what to wear. But in itself, that doesn't help you unless you find a way to make it work for you in other settings. So the question is to think of examples of all the different ways that cultural capital works today, so as cosmopolitan or as omnivorous or as ironic or as authentic and how this can be converted into what sort of resources. So either material or symbolic or access to networks. So what's, how does it help you? What use does it have? So that's the assignment for this week. All right, so that's the assignment for this week. Just uh, to finish up, I, I just have, the final, have this final question for you. Uh, what was your main takeaway for this time? What, what can't you let go of? What will you still be thinking about in, in, in two days' time? Yeah, well, when the, you think the, about this conversation? <laughs> I think the, the, the internal contradictions of, of cultural capital I think especially now, that's the one thing so that you see that that people understand cultural capital and still uh, and are, can, are able to reflect upon it, but still also try to make it work and believe in it. I think that's the one big thing. Um, I think the other thing that we haven't really touched upon is that it's interesting that, that inequality has, of course, increased in most countries. So whereas it has become more open and all these upper middle class people have become so much more tolerant and open and aware, at the same time we're looking at, a, at an enormous increase of inequalities in I think all of the societies that we have read about for this week. And this is yeah. still a puzzle that we can't completely solve yet. Right, so this is also the, I think uh, in uh, in. Uh, Recommend, recommended reading uh, that isn't uh, uh, that, that you don't have to read but you can flip through it you also prescribed I think Piketty and this other uh, book about inequality by uh, exactly this one uh, with the with the fishbowl on the, on the front so also Piketty describes about this political inequality uh, and economic inequality uh, and the, uh, so there's indeed there, there's much more to it to this discussion for me what I can let go of this week is also uh, indeed, this more subtle and nuanced way that inequality nowadays works, but also this thing I already mentioned when discussing Lamontis is more room for agency somehow, or like this open-endedness of it all. Uh, there is room not only for social mobility, but also for people to <laughs> to to uh, uh, to get together and change this uh, these forms of inequality. So that's my main takeaway going into the. Uh, weekend just now so i'm going to wrap up uh, next podcast we have philippa chong and jennifer lena 
um, they talk about uh, uh, those are American scholars very interesting very very interesting and they have a discussion on how the arts have seemingly become more open yet have managed to remain exclusive so that's the uh, the next uh, installment of this podcast it's a slightly shorter episode but definitely worth the listen um, this was culture and inequality podcast session two uh, my name is Luc Brans and I spoke to Gieselinde Kuipers. Thank you, Gieselinde. Thank you. And uh, we see each other uh, and we hear each other soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.